Welcome back to Over the Top, a great war podcast. On this episode, we're going back to the Dardanelles as the Allies try to push to the strait heading for Constantinople. But before we get into that, how's everyone doing? I hope everyone is in good health and good spirits. I've officially beaten COVID-19, according to my doctor, and let me tell you, having it was not fun. I think it showed on the last episode, my energy level was almost non-existent. When I recorded that episode, I was just about at the peak of the illness. This is a virus your body doesn't really know how to deal with, so it starts sending out warning signals to all parts of the body, and all sorts of weird things start going on. My fever would jump up and down from 99 to 102 all day, all night for about eight days. Your body starts to get deprived of oxygen. Normal pulse oximeter levels should be around 95 to 100%. My levels at one point were hovering around 89. If you hit 85, go to the hospital. It's getting dangerous at that point. My head was extremely foggy at a certain point for several days. My body felt like it had been through some sort of trauma. I developed a cough and congestion, so I got a prescribed antibiotic out of fear anything would turn into pneumonia. About a day into it, I lost my taste and smell. But around day nine, things turned for the better. My fever went away, aches went away, O2 levels started to rise to normal, and energy began to increase. I still have a lingering cough, which is getting better by the day. I've gotten back to my taste, but still slightly, no, you know, there's no smell. I can only slightly smell things. And more importantly, with my energy back, so is my motivation, which affects the show. So that's an update on that and probably or shouldn't be hearing any more about COVID in me. I don't have any admin notes for this episode, so let me get into what I'm drinking for this episode. I'm drinking cold brew coffee. That's right, folks. It's eight o'clock in the morning. And I, the reason why I woke up sorely to do this episode uh, to beat the heat, you know, I got windows open. If I do this in the daytime, the ambient noise is just, it, there's a lot going on. There's, there's gardeners, there's kids yelling. It's just so much more easier, especially in the summertime, to wake up early, beat the heat, and record the episode. And I mean, it's 8 o'clock in the morning. I got to have some sort of self-constraint. I mean, I can't go start drinking at 8 o'clock in the morning. You just can't do that. So what do you say we get into some Great War history, folks? On the last episode, we returned to the Western Front, and now we're going back to the water strait that separates Europe-Turkey from Asia-Turkey. I'm talking about the Dardanelles. On episode 18, the push for the Dardanelles, it ended with Churchill still demanding for a naval push to the water strait, and the newly appointed commander of, of the new Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, Sir Ian Hamilton, has doubts that a push forward was doable without first landing troops. I was getting a little ahead of myself. I need to back it up a tad because I still need to talk about that push to the water strait, and that's what this episode is going to be about. Now, if you were a sailor during this time, it could either have been a good time or a real bad time, depending on what ship you're on. Sailors will get to experience the meaning of naval battle, which is why most of them joined the Navy. That, of course, was to experience naval action. I give them credit. They had balls of steel back then. I mean, there was a chance they could be blown up, burnt, 
charred, deep fried, or drowned. Basically, any sort of catastrophic event that could happen to the ship could happen to them, including making the seabed their final resting place. These seamen deserve credit for having the courage to join during this time period. But this particular naval battle on the Dardanelles won't involve opposing Navy forces duking it out on the water. No, this will involve the British and French ships versus land howitzers, Turkish forts, and lines of sea mines. This new plan of attack will involve three groups, Group A, Group B, and Group C, all heading for the Narrows, the narrowest point of the Dardanelles, which was between, and excuse me if I mispronounce this, Kalitbahir and Kanakale. The German battlecruiser Goben lay tucked away just north around the corner of Nagara Point. Group A consisted of the ships, the HMS Queen Elizabeth, of course leading the way, the HMS Argomenon, Lord Nelson and Inflexible, with the Prince George and Triumph guarding their flanks. Group A's job was to move up the strait, open fire on the Turkish forts on both the Europe side and the Asian side, bomb the hell out of them, then move up Group B. When Group B would be launched, their job was to pull forward passing Group A, moving up the strait. Group B was made up of four French battleships, the Suffren, the Bouvet, the Galou, and the Charlemagne. After being pulled forward, they would then reduce the range on the narrows and commence their shelling on for the fort positions. Next would come Group C, made up of the HMS Ocean, Irresistible, Albion, Vengeance, Swiftsure, and the Majestic. Their role was to act as reliefs replacing any damaged ships. After all the Turkish firing was silenced, they would then recommence the minesweeping, which would allow the fleet to close the range even further, finally taking down the final forts on the 19th of March, then proceeding forward onto Constantinople. As usual, this plan sounds good, like most do on paper. But as we know, when paper gets wet, it often crumbles apart. Now, going into this, the Allies realized that minefields and the forts weren't the only issue. Mobile howitzers were also causing havoc and had to be dealt with, as one midshipman describes it saying, quote, We were being fired on by concealed howitzers. They are beastly things to deal with as they fire from behind a hill and all you know about them is that the shells are falling all around. You can't even tell what direction they come from and so it is impossible to hit back. When these batteries are located by airplanes, they move. Luckily, they are not big guns. But this high angle fire is very objectionable as the projectiles come pretty nearly straight down onto the ship's deck and side armor is no good. Midshipman Herbert Williams, HMS Argomenon, end quote. Yes, howitzers could cause some damage to the pre-dreadnoughts, but overall the major threat they posed was towards the converted fishing trawlers turned into minesweepers. These trawlers were only doing about six knots with about four knots of current working against them while sweeping for mines. This made the boats easy, slow-moving targets. It appeared the Turks had created a formidable defensive system to guard the strait. And why wouldn't they? This was their home. Think about the situation going into this. The ships could only go so far because of the mine problem. 
Remember, the Turkish mine layer Nusret had gone unobserved on March 8th, laying down a new line of mines on an area believed to have been already cleared. Turkish forts were still in action and considered a threat. And now the Turks have mobile howitzers firing into the strait on the sweepers. Even two powerful navies like France and Britain have to be cautious of the situation. And this all weighed on the shoulders of Admiral Jean de Robeck, who was placed in charge after Admiral Sackville Carden was sent home due to poor health. De Robeck was definitely being, I don't want to call it bullying, but persuaded by Winston Churchill, who was demanding this new naval offensive and quick. On March 18th, as the sun rose over the waters of the Aegean Sea and the Dardanelles, Turkish observers witnessed a sea full of British and French battleships, and at 10.30 a.m., Vice Admiral de Robeck proceeded with the attack, launching Group A. The pre-dreadnoughts moved into the strait, led by the Queen Elizabeth, and at 11.30 a.m., both men and machines worked in sync as the ships opened fire on the forts. A midshipman from the Lord Nelson described the situation as the guns prepared to open a bombardment of shells, saying, quote, An immense clatter now reverberated throughout the metallic enclosure as the gun's crew tested the machinery. Empty ammunition cages rattled and banged up and down the truck. The guns rose and fell as the elevating ram slid in and out. Breaches swung open and closed with a clang. Telephones rang. Interlocking gears clicked. Telescopic rammers shot out to incredible lengths and collapsed as quickly into an inoffensive silence. Nearly all the machinery was working hydraulically at a pressure of a thousand pounds to the square inch. In every pipe, liquid hissed and surged and occasionally, from a leaky joint, spouted with a bullet-like velocity into the well below the guns. In a few minutes, the deafening din ceased as abruptly as it began. The gear had been tested, found correct, and was reported so to the central control station. Load with lidite shells. The waves breaking against the side of the ship could plainly be heard. Suddenly, two rings of, on the fire gong. Stand by, one ring, fire, and with a crump, the gun would leap back into the turret and start slowly to run out. The air in the gunhouse suddenly compressed, then released by the great mass of the gun, was rent at the same time by the noise of the explosion. Before the reverberations had died away, the gun crew were reloading. Midshipman Alfred Langley, HMS Lord Nelson. End quote. After the guns opened up at 11.30 a.m., the ships from Group A came under a considerable amount of fire from the unseen howitzers lurking behind the surrounding hills. At 12.06 p.m., de Robeck believed it was time to bring up Group B, led by the fearless French Rear Admiral Emile Guprat. The Gallu and the Charlemagne moved up on the European flank side of Group A, while the Suffren and the Bouvet moved up along the Asiatic side. As the French ships closed to within 9,000 yards of the Narrows, 
the Turkish forts came back to life, putting tremendous pressure on the French ships as they too began their shelling. Shells were bursting all around the ships, creating large towers of water rising from the sea. The Suffren was hit by a heavy shell that penetrated through to a magazine. A magazine is an ammunition storage on a ship. But quick thinking by a young officer named Francois Lanouzel to flood the magazine saved the Suffren from going down. The following statement is from Rear Admiral Guprat after his report on the Suffren saying, quote, In a few minutes, the flagship was hit by a large number of heavy shells, one of which caused major damage. A casemate and turret were knocked out of action and all of their crew killed and incinerated. There was an escape of flame and burning gases into the port magazine and the boiler room. I went straight down. The scene was tragically macabre, an image of desolation, and the flames spared nothing. As for our young men, all now lying dead on the bare deck, blackened, burnt skeletons, twisted in all directions, no trace of any clothing, the fire having devoured all. In these circumstances, time was running out for our ship. It was going without doubt to explode with all hands. If a young gunnery officer named Francois Lenouzel, acting with initiative beyond praise, hadn't saved the ship by hurriedly ordering the flooding of the magazines. Rear Admiral Emilie Goubret, Suffren, end quote. All the British sailors could do was watch as the French ships took poundings from the forts. One British seaman watching in horror said, quote, I say, hats off to the Frenchmen. Two of their cruisers now passed up the lines and took up position ahead of our ships over on the Asiatic side in a direct line with the Dardanelles fort close to Chinook. If anyone went over into hell, these two French cruisers did. At times, it was impossible to see them for the spray that was thrown up by the shells falling all around them. The fort was firing like hell. Able seaman Daniel Sem, HMS Prince George. End quote. The Suffren had taken a major hit, yet saved by a heroic young officer. The British were still shelling their targets and at the same time watching the French ships taking a beating from the forts and mobile howitzers. And as if this situation wasn't already starting to boil, roughly around 1400 hours, 2 p.m., as Group C had been ordered up to relieve the French, a massive explosion was heard coming from the Bouvet. Almost simultaneously, it struck a mine and was hit by a heavy shell, causing a large shockwave across the waters. All on deck and land were watching, including a Turkish captain named Ashir Arkayan. He described watching the results with satisfaction from the Turkish gun battery, saying, quote, The Bouvet started to withdraw, but at that moment, a cloud of red and black smoke arose from under the ship, which may have struck a mine. Immediately after this, there was a much more violent explosion. We believe that a shell from Mejideya had blown up the magazine. The ship heeled over at once and her crew poured into the sea. Captain Ashir Arkayan, Artillery, Turkish 5th Army, end quote. This was no joke. There was no innocent game being played. The men on these ships, like those in the trenches, were being killed by the hundreds. 
Men from the Prince George had a close-up view of the horror that was taking place before their eyes. One British man described it, saying, quote, We saw an immense cloud of black smoke ascending from the Frenchman's starboard quarter. Almost immediately, she began to heel over towards us, and gradually, steadily, and gracefully, she continued to heel till her mast lay on the water. A second or two in that position, then, just as steadily, she continued to heel over till she lay keel uppermost. She was perhaps half a minute in that position, then quickly slid under the water. From the time we saw the smoke till she disappeared was barely three and a half minutes. No noise, nothing horrifying in the sight. Our imagination supplied the horror. Regimental Sergeant Major David Hepburn, Royal Garrison Artillery attached to the HMS Prince George. End quote. Again, Imagine being a sailor on one of the British ships watching as the French battleship explodes, then sinks into the water in just a matter of minutes. What could be going on in your head? Are we next? And put yourself into Robeck's position. What he must have been going through at that moment. So far, one ship almost sunk. Other ships were still being shelled on by the forts and howitzers. And now, one French ship lost for good along with most of its crew. And I can't even begin to imagine what horrors the French sailors from the Bouvet went through from the time of the last explosion. In a split second, an unimaginable explosion, then the flood of seawater, then down they went. Again, anything that could happen to the ship could happen to them. A seaman from the Bouvet named Xavier Peyro had just been sent to fetch more ammunition when the explosion happened. The following statement was written by this man describing the situation saying, quote, The ship immediately listed to starboard. I was completely covered in the coal dust which came from the bunkers. I went to the signal ladder and with a second mate we climbed up. From the bridge I got myself onto the funnel which was entering the water. Then I climbed onto the hole. I believe that the second mate was trapped and he fell into a hatchway. From the keel, I threw myself into the water. I couldn't rise to the surface because of the tug of the water. I was in the water for some time. Then, when the bottom of the ship touched the bottom of the sea, I came straight up, either because the ship touched the bottom or the boilers exploded. I couldn't breathe. Blood was coming out of my mouth and my ears. When I was on the surface again, if I hadn't found a piece of wood, I would have been finished. I managed to grab one of the hammocks and held it between my knees. I saw another chap crying out to me to save him, and I told him to come closer to me so that he could be on one end of the plank and me on the other. But when the English came to fish us out of the water, I saw that both his legs had been cut off. He died three days later. Seaman Savio Bairo, Bouvet, end quote. As the Bouvet disappeared into the waters of the Dardanelles, it took along with her its captain, Reggio de la Touche, and 638 crew members. 66 survived. For a small amount of time, the Turks showed sympathy and suspended the shelling as the British were picking up survivors. But soon, the bursting of shells erupted again. The Allied ships also resumed their shelling on the forts, but they still had the mine problem to deal with. The trawlers had been ordered forward to sweep ahead of the fleet, 
and lurking beneath was the line of undetected mines laid down by the Nusret. At 16.11, 4.11 p.m., the Inflexible, which had already been hit by several shells, ran into a mine on its starboard bow, causing severe damage, forcing the Inflexible to retreat. The ship took on considerable amount of water as it huffed and puffed its way back out of the strait. And just three minutes after the Inflexible hit that mine, at 16.14, the Irresistible also set off a mine. The Turks then tried to finish her off as it began to drift closer to the Narrows into Aranqua Bay. A midshipman describes it saying, quote, A great shock was felt which lifted the whole ship up. Having been struck in the starboard engine room, which filled up very quickly, a worn officer and three men drowned. The order was given for everyone to come on deck. Everybody came up from below and started throwing everything that would float overboard. As we thought that we should have to swim as there were not any destroyers or anything near. We were subjected to heavy fire from the forts. We were hit twice by shells, one lightite on the after conning tower and another which entered the commander's upper deck cabin after passing through the officer's WCs. Midshipman Owen Amine, HMS Irresistible, end quote. The destroyer where pulled alongside and rescued the majority of Irresistible's crew. And by this time, Derobek had seen enough. At 17.50, 5.50 p.m., he ordered a general recall. Too many ships had been damaged and lost. All were to turn around and head back to the entrance of the Dardanelles. As the retreat began, the HMS Ocean was tasked with towing the Irresistible. As Ocean circled around Irresistible, with no surprise by observers, she too was hit by a mine at 18.05, 6.05 p.m. There weren't many casualties, and again, destroyers came around to rescue the crew. But Ocean took on major irreparable damage and was abandoned at 19.30 hours, 7.30 p.m. Another ship lost. Robeck had no idea a new line of mines was laid by the Nusrat. Him and other senior officers really believed these were new floating mines released by the Turks that were carried by the current from the strait, which obviously was a complete false assumption. Now, as the Allied ships retreated, many of the crew members began to come above deck to get some air and get an assessment of what took place. Remember, they were below deck working ammunition, guns, engines, etc. for hours. They had no idea of what was going on above deck and on the waters. It's not as if senior officers felt it crucial to relay information down below to them. It was just a mass commotion down below, yelling of orders, clanking of metal, rounds being loaded and fired, just pure chaos. I'm not or never have been a sailor, but I can imagine it's pretty grueling down below, especially under these circumstances. One corporal described coming above deck during the retreat, saying, quote, Everyone crowded out onto the upper deck to get a breath of fresh air. By looking at a man's face, you could tell if he had been stationed below as ammunition supply or engine room or stokehold or in opposition, those who had been at the guns. The latter were full of fight, whereas those who had been below were white-faced and showed their nerve-wracking experience. They had not the excitement of fighting or the knowledge of what was going on. From 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., 
they had heard nothing but crashing of shells striking our ship and the sound of our own guns firing. Rumor passed from one to another, often enlarged at the damage done by the enemy fire. Corporal Fred Brooks, Royal Marines, HMS Triumph, end quote. The after-actions review of this battle presented a sobering reality of what actually had been achieved on the 18th of March. Two ships were lost, one of which went down to the bottom of the sea within minutes after being hit and took hundreds of its crew down with her. For Dorobek, this had to have been viewed as a moral and costly defeat in his eyes. I can only imagine he was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. How many forts were, de were destroyed to accept having lost two ships and two badly damaged along with hundreds of men dead. Was it worth it? Some have blamed Derobex refusing to resume his attack the next day as being the defeat. It's reported that some Turks and Germans admitted they didn't have enough ammunition to put up a fight the next day. And if Derobex would have continued his attack, they would have not been able to fight back. However, some historians argue this. They claim in Turkish archives, it was reported the Turks did have plenty of shells left. The forts were battered, but still intact, and the minefields at the Narrows still had not been reached. Here's some true facts at the end of the day on March 18th. The Turkish forts and howitzers were indeed still operational, and the mines were still present at the Narrows. Two ships had been lost and two more badly damaged. Hundreds of men had perished. These are the facts regardless of if the Turks had enough ammunition remaining or not. And because of these facts, there was now a big problem and a big decision to be made in regards to how the Allies would proceed onto the Dardanelles. Derobic thought for sure he was going to be dismissed, but instead he got word from Churchill that he was getting four British battleships and a French replacement for the Bouvet, and they were already en route to join with him. The minesweeper problem had a solution. It was to ditch the trowlers and fit the minesweeping gear onto destroyers. Admiral de Robeck's confidence was restored, and back in London, Churchill seemed to be pleased by this. However, the opinions began to change after General Ian Hamilton wired a message back to Lord Kitchener regarding the horrors he witnessed at the Strait on the 18th of March. His message to Kitchener said, quote, I am being most reluctantly driven towards the conclusion that the Dardanelles are less likely to be forced by battleships than at one time seemed probable. And if the army is to participate, its operations will not assume the subsidiary form anticipated. This must be deliberate and prepared military operation, carried out at full strength so as to open passage for the Navy. End quote. In other words, Troops in large numbers were essential, and Kitchener agreed. Eventually, on March 22nd, DeRobic came, came around to support Sir Ian Hamilton's thoughts on the matter. He agreed ground troops were needed if the Allies wanted to take the Dardanelles. Churchill, on the other hand, was still demanding DeRobic continue his naval assault. He drafted a new plan to senior admirals, but they refused to endorse it. London responded to Churchill, which said, it is unthinkable to insist on an action that the responsible admiral on the scene wouldn't himself support. Churchill's fight for a naval assault was lost. He had no choice but to accept that he'd been beaten. It was now up to Sir Ian Hamilton to decide where and how 
to land his army at the Dardanelles. And that's where I'm going to end the Dardanelles on this episode. Over on the Eastern Front, things seem to be stabilizing for Russia. In the south around the Carpathians, by late March, they were again on the attack. And on March 22nd, Prismissal had fallen after a siege of 194 days. After taking Prismissal from the Austrians, the Russians captured 120,000 troops, nine generals, and hundreds of guns. This drove Emperor Franz Joseph to fits of crying and depression. This also freed up three Russian army corps to join a spring offensive, which was looking promising to Russian generals. All right, folks, I'm going to start wrapping this up right here. I think you can see how complicated the Dardanelles campaign was and that there was no way it could be covered in one episode. And there's still more to go as Sir Ian Hamilton plans his next move for the landing of troops. But just as I said about these episodes, I'll be going back and forth. And on the next episode, we're going back to the Western Front for an event that, in my opinion, brought out the worst in what humans are capable of. And I'll just leave it at that. Everyone, thank you again for your continued support. This show wouldn't exist without listeners, and I'm truly grateful you're listening. You can find the show at www.ottgwpodcast.com and a variety of other podcasting platforms. I'm on Instagram at ottgwpodcast and on Facebook. Please leave me a review if you would be so kind. The books I read for this episode are A World Undone by G.J. Meyer and Gallipoli, written by the hard-hitting historian of Great War, Peter Hart. I hope these episodes inspire you to go out and get these books. Folks, there's so much more to them than what I'm relaying on this podcast, and I strongly encourage you to get a copy. You won't regret it, especially if history is your thing. This week's Great War recommendation is a movie titled Frantz, F-R-A-N-T-Z. You can watch it for free on Amazon Prime. It's about a French war veteran living with guilt for killing a German. Then he travels to the man's hometown and meets his grieving widow. It's a good movie, released in 2017. It's in black and white. My opinion, it's well-written, directed, and it just kind of has an old-time feel to it. All right, folks. Until the next episode, be safe, stay healthy, take care, everyone.